I wanted to let you know before we start that we have now uh, put sermons online. So sermons are now on the website. And I wanted to clarify, this is not because I think I'm awesome and I'm trying to make much of myself. This is specifically for people who have missed, um, and especially the kids' workers upstairs. I've been asked that multiple times by some of you to put those online, so we have done that. Uh, And again, that's not because I would like a lot of people listening to me or because I think I'm awesome. The goal, the purpose of my sermons, the goal of the Mountain Church is that we would make much of Jesus. That's what we're about. That you might see Jesus more clearly, that his glory, his magnificence, his majesty might be seen as it truly is. Uh, that's the efforts, and I, I pray by God's grace that that's what he does. Whoever preaches at the Mountain Church, uh, by God's grace, he would clarify, reveal, bring light to his glory, bring clarity to the gospel and how it affects uh, everything in life that we do. Uh, so the sermons are online. They, we also have a, an iTunes podcast that was created. So if you're a podcaster, uh, you can go into the iTunes, go into store, and just type in the Mountain Church, and we should pop up. And if you hit subscribe, they'll automatically come to you as we upload them. Um, so I hope, uh, by God's grace, that this brings uh, further enjoyment and delight in the gospel, and, and it can be a blessing to those who might not be able to make the Sunday gathering. So. All right, well, with that being said, let's jump into the text, Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 46. We're continuing our series through the gospel according to Mark. We've been at it now for about nine months. Now, if you're new to the Mountain Church or you've been joining, uh, or if you joined us recently, uh, we, I like to go through books of the Bible verse by verse, section by section, but what that normally means is that sermon series are not seven weeks, they're not 10 weeks, they're not 14 weeks, they can be 60 weeks. Uh, 70 weeks. And the Gospel of Mark is, is a fairly small gospel. Uh, if we went through Luke, man, we might be two to three years. So we're about nine months in, and we're looking at Mark chapter 10. And up to this point, I just want to clarify to you that lately we've been talking a lot about service and surrender and giving everything over to Jesus and Jesus commanding that from us. But I hope that you've heard, and I want to clarify now, that none of these claims and none of these demands Jesus has is as he's some sort of authoritarian dictator who is demanding us and commanding that we, that we serve him as our duty and our obligation, that he commands us to kill ourselves because he somehow wants to rob us of pleasure in this world or, or rob us of the things that we really want that we think will provide happiness. Jesus has these strong words because he loves us. He wants what's best for us. Sometimes these strong words from Jesus can be like, like hard candy, that at first, you know, it might not seem that great, but the more it's in your mouth, the sweeter it is, and the more it, it's enjoyable. I think sometimes Jesus' strong words like this, they can sting us initially, but they're meant to be sweet. Jesus wants what's best for us. He knows that in our sin, left to ourselves, we are set for destruction, for suffering, for death. And when Jesus says, kill yourself, When Jesus says, lose your life, when Jesus says, give up everything to follow me, he does so in love, knowing, man, I've got something so much better. You think you know what true happiness is. You think you know what delight is. Follow me. Follow me. Come to me. I know what's best for you. Jesus wants you to have abundant, joyful, peaceful, comforted life in him. In him. That's why he says, 
give up everything and, and surrender everything. So his words are sweet. And we're looking at a passage right after some of those words that Jesus talked about and saying, I had come to serve and, and be served, and anyone who follows me will do like I do and, and serve. And we see a story of Jesus healing a blind man named Bartimaeus. And this is a great story of what Jesus does for us in the gospel. So I, I want us to kind of put ourselves into this story this morning. Starting in verse 46, they, they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with the disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. Now the city Jericho was on the pathway to uh, Jerusalem. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast and ultimately to go to the cross. And Jericho would be on that path, that pilgrimage path on the way to Jerusalem. But if you have any kind of familiarity with the gospel or with the Bible, you might know that actually Matthew and Luke record a little bit different story than what Mark does. And whenever we kind of see a, a difference or maybe what looks like two things that say different things, what we can't do is say, well, the Bible has uh, inconsistencies. The Bible contradicts itself. Can we really trust the accuracy of the Bible? There's other things that are going on there. And this is why uh, I love the ESV Study Bible. If you don't own an ESV Study Bible, I will buy you one. Uh, I once heard a pastor say that if he was stranded on an island and had to get one book, he was only allowed one book on the stranded island by himself, it would be a toss-up between a book on how to make a canoe and the ESV Study Bible. That's how much he loved the ESV Study Bible. It's, it's, it's great. And they have a helpful note in here. I wanted to read it for us because I don't think I could say it any better. In, in Mark chapter 10, verse 46, the old Jericho near the pilgrimage path to Jerusalem may no longer have been populated at the time of Jesus. The newer Herodian Jericho was situated southeast of the pilgrimage path, serving as a meeting place for pilgrims. To reach this new Jericho from the pilgrimage road, one had to travel the same road there and back. This might explain the slight differences between Mark's account and those of Matthew 20, 29 and Luke 18, 35. So this is where the, the scene is happening. It's, it's Jesus is leaving Jericho and on the side of the road, on this pilgrimage path, sat a blind beggar named Bartimaeus. Now, Mark is not normally known for including names. He very infrequently includes the names of those who were healed. And he, he kind of gives some great detail about this guy. He even lists who his dad is, son of Timaeus. And this is Mark's way of putting like a footnote or a reference. Like, you want to know if this story is true? Go talk to this guy. He, he's, he's real. He, he's Timaeus' son. This is probably suggesting that this guy was known in the community that Mark was writing to. He's validating that this story really happened. Go, go see Bartimaeus and, and ask him. And Bartimaeus would, was sitting on the road, the pilgrimage road. This would be a great place for beggars to sit. A populated pathway uh, that people were traveling on to Jerusalem. Um, it would have been an ideal place for begging, and there's this crowd that's following Jesus. And verse 47, when Bartimaeus hears this commotion and hears that Jesus of Nazareth was a part of it, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now this phrase, son of David, is, is also kind of a little bit unique to Mark. He only includes it twice in his whole gospel. Uh, Matthew includes it a, a whole lot more. And, and what this phrase, what it means is that Jesus, 
is, is it's a messianic term. Bartimaeus is attributing Jesus as the Messiah, son of David. He is a fulfillment, he is of the lineage, and he is the fulfillment of the promise that was made to King David when God told David in 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 12, out of your offspring is going to come a king that his kingdom will be established and he will rule forever. This is the Davidic promise, the Davidic covenant. This is what Jesus is. is. He is the Messiah. And the Messiah was to do a couple things. He was not only to establish this great kingdom, but he was to conquer not physical enemies of Romans or Persians or, or slaughter and coming on his white horse with a sword. He was conquering spiritual enemies, slavery, blindness, oppression. And in, in one of probably the, the greatest mic drops of all time, uh, Luke records a story in, in chapter 4 about Jesus in a, in a temple, in a synagogue, on the Sabbath day. He stands up, he opens the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads this fulfillment on what the Son of David, what the Messiah is to do. Luke 4, in verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus reads this scroll. He folds it up. He sits down, and he says, this, this has just been fulfilled in, in your hearing. Boom. I just fulfilled this. This is what I've come to do, to set the captives free. And again, I think we need, we need to put ourselves in this in the story because in many ways, we are like this blind man, Bartimaeus. We are just like this blind man. And Jesus has come to open up our eyes as well. The Bible says that we are like this blind man. We are in absolute darkness and desperate need of God's mercy and grace. We are not necessarily physically blind, but spiritually blind. We are in need of God's help. The Bible says that, that in our sin, we are held captive. We are in the domain of darkness and that the God and, and sin and the God of this world has blinded us so that we don't see the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus has come to redeem and restore his people, restore life to flourishing, restore our eyesight so that we might see and savor him. This is why Jesus came. This is what this title means, Son of David, Messiah, Redeemer, Restorer, Setting Captives Free, Giving the Blind Their Eyesight, Freeing the Oppressed. This is what the Messiah came to do. As we're thinking about this and trying to put ourselves in this story, I thought it might be helpful if I could maybe do a little dramatic reading. So, because I think sometimes, when we, at least this is what I did when I first read through it, we, we read through this man, we... we sitting on the side of the road. This crowd walks by. He hears Jesus of Nazareth is in town, and then he cries out, Jesus, son of Nazareth. And as we're reading it in our mind, that's kind of what we say. We just kind of say it like that. He cried out, Jesus, son of Nazareth. Well, let's, let's try to put ourselves in this story. So if, if you're into closing your eyes and kind of thinking about what's happening, that's cool. I'm not going to think that you're sleeping or awkwardly meditating. But when we think about this story, he'd be sitting on the side of the road, Okay, right? So he'd be kneeling by the side of the road, and he can't see Jesus, right? So he, he hears Jesus is, is walking by, doesn't know where he is, and there's a large crowd. Okay, now if we know anything about crowds, we know they're normally not silent. 
So Bartimaeus wouldn't have just said, uh, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. In fact, the word that is there is cried out, which can be translated scream, shout, like harshly. So I, I thought about shouting harshly at you. <laughs> but we have to, I mean, this guy wouldn't have been like, hey, Jesus, have mercy on me. Son of David! And I'm not, I'm not going to get as loud as I think I could get. Have mercy on me! I can't see you. I don't know where you are. I, I, I don't know exactly how to get to you, but I'm going to shout, son of David, have mercy on me. And what's the crowd do? Oh, shut it, blind man. They, they rebuke him. It's harsh disapproval. You nuisance. Can't you see we're following Jesus on the way to Jerusalem? He doesn't have time for you. But what does he do? cries out all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That's, that's what he, I mean, he probably said it louder. You guys are, are pretty, this room is pretty quiet right now. <laughs> he would have shouted, Jesus, have mercy on me. And one of the things I think we, 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 we should very much put ourselves in the, in the blind man. We are the blind man in the story. But in a lot of ways, we are also like the crowd. We are also like the crowd. We are blocking people from coming to Jesus. Now, right off the bat, you might think, what? I have never stopped someone from coming into church. I have never stopped someone from coming to Jesus. I have never strongly rebuked someone for someone crying out for Jesus. The Bible says there's, there's two types of sins. There's a sin that's called commission, where you're doing the wrong thing. But there's also another type of sin that we often don't like to think about, called omission, where we're not doing the things that, we should supposed to be, that we're supposed to be doing. That's still sinful. We are like the crowd when we demonstrate a life in which Jesus really isn't worth following. We are blocking people from coming to Jesus, from, from seeing his uniqueness, his glory, his beauty, when we are not demonstrating that. We are blocking people from coming to Jesus, oftentimes by not doing anything. We're blocking people from coming to Jesus from our silence, our laziness, our retreating to the comforts of our safe suburban homes, our condos, our apartments. We're just like the crowd walking with Jesus, following Jesus, and not caring about those who aren't. We are, a lot of, in a lot of ways, we are like the crowd. I love Jesus, though. He's so merciful and gracious and compassionate. He's a God of grace. He stops. He reacts a little bit differently than the crowd does. And he says, call him. And they said to the blind man, take heart, get up, he's calling you. Now, this is a pretty different reaction than the crowd first had. They, they might have just got a very gentle little correction from Jesus. So you can kind of just imagine the crowd strongly rebuking, hushing, hey, you nuisance, shut up. We're going to Jerusalem. Jesus doesn't have time for you. Then Jesus says, call him. They're like, oh, hey, hey, Bartimaeus. Remember when we said shut up and we strongly rebuke you? Just joking. Jesus wants you. 
get it right. I'm, that's my reading into the text. So hopefully you're not thinking that I'm a heretic. But that's what I kind of imagine might have gone down, something like that. But what I don't want us to miss, if you're a disciple of Jesus here this morning, is that notice Jesus didn't walk over to him and call him. He didn't do all the work himself. He calls the blind man through his disciples. It says there in verse 49, Jesus said, call him, and they called the blind man. If you are a disciple, Jesus plans to call the blind through you. I don't think God and God has some sort of plan B in which he's not going to save the world through the proclamation of the gospel through his disciples. Jesus calls the blind through his disciples, through you, through us. If you have been called by Jesus to follow him, you are called to call others. This is humbling that, that this is how God has ordained and planned the salvation of the world to come about through through us, really, through me, through my words. But it's this high responsibility that we have, that Jesus trusts, he, he calls us to be his representatives, to call the blind through us that we can say, hey, Jesus wants you. Jesus is calling you. Come to Jesus. Are we a people that are regularly calling the blind to come to Jesus? Are we a people that are regularly sharing the gospel? This is what we are called to do as disciples. In verse 50, see this, the blind man, he stops, the crowd comes and calls him, and he throws off his cloak. Now, we don't wear cloaks. Cloak, this might kind of be a foreign idea to us, but it was really interesting in my, in my studies this week. Cloaks, this outer garment, this cloak that he had, it wasn't really a common thing that a lot of beggars had. It would have been very valuable to beggars. The cloak would, it would something during the day that he would lay out, that he would collect his, his gifts and, and the money that was given to him as he was begging. But it was also something that would keep him warm at night. So this is honestly probably one of the few things that he owned that was valuable was this cloak. And he throws it off. You see just a, a couple verses after the, the rich young ruler, and you can compare and contrast those two. Like the rich young man, he had everything. He, was, he had great riches, and yet he couldn't give them up to follow Jesus. And here is this blind beggar who throws off everything he has and runs to Jesus? Seemingly without even considering, without thinking, he just casts it away. One commentary said that he didn't want anything to be a hindrance in his coming to Jesus. He didn't want anything to trip him up in his pursuit of Jesus. So he throws it off. He throws off his cloak. This word springs up. It's a great word. It, It can mean leap. Leap into the air. Stand up with force. Like, this guy was coming for Jesus. Now, you might think, okay, he, he, he stands up and he comes to Jesus. And some people might think, well, you know, he wasn't fully blind. I mean, he could, see, he could still see a little bit. Like, he could still see maybe some blurs and, and maybe he could hear Jesus' voice and come to him. But I like to think about this story. Like, he's completely blind. He throws off his cloak, he springs up, he's like, Jesus, I'm coming for you. I don't know where you are, but I want to come for you. Like, he's completely blind. He's running after the voice of Jesus. Again, I don't know if that's true, but it's just what my mind goes, where I'm thinking. And Jesus asks him, what do you want me to do for you? Super similar question to what he uh, responded to James and John in the section previously. 
when they ask Jesus for something, and Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? But look at the different response that this blind man has. Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Heal me. Heal me, Jesus. Not the request of the disciples, which is, Jesus, why don't you glorify me? Jesus, make us great. Jesus, give us these seats of power. This Bartimaeus says, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Now, Jesus didn't ask this question because he didn't know what was wrong with the man. He's clearly blind. Jesus is not a, a dummy. He doesn't ask, normally doesn't ask questions for no reason. Jesus was asking this question to give the man an opportunity to express faith. He was giving the man an opportunity to admit his need. And he does. Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus says in verse 52, go on your way. Your faith has made you well. Your faith, your, your tr- complete trust in me. Your dependence upon me. Wasn't Jesus' words, it wasn't Jesus' touch, it wasn't the disciples' touch, it was his faith that made him well. By grace, his eyesight is restored. Jesus heals. And it's interesting, if you look back at the gospel according to Mark on, on who's healed, listen on the, the types of people that Jesus has healed in the past, those who are getting it. Tax collectors, kids, broken women, the helpless, a leper, a blind beggar. The people that get healed are the people that admit their need, their dependence. Jesus, I need you. Your faith has made me well. I'm in need of mercy and grace. And this is how Jesus calls and saves, in his mercy and his grace. And verse 52, immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. When you see Jesus, you follow him immediately. You can't see Jesus and not follow him. When you see Jesus, you, you follow him. And some of you know a little bit of my testimony or might have heard me share my testimony in, in longer sections, but uh, I thought I, I saw Jesus pretty clearly because you know I grew up in church. I, I went to Awana. I had Bible verses memorized. I had the Bible read to me by my parents at night. I thought I knew who Jesus was. But I didn't follow him. I didn't love him. Jesus wasn't beautiful to me. He wasn't sweet. He wasn't delightful. I grew up in church. I knew all the stories, the facts. I knew the right things to say. Jesus was not beautiful to me. Other things were far more beautiful, like sports. I hated going to church. Man, I just hated it. It was so boring. I hated hearing about Jesus. I would rather have stayed home and, and watched sports or, or played sports. Other things were a lot more beautiful to me, a lot more glorious to me. I was a, a pitcher. Uh, I, I love baseball, and I, and I was a pitcher. And there was nothing more beautiful to me than a strikeout, giving them this juicy, curveball that breaks at the last second and they look like a fool swinging. It's like so beautiful. I love that. I long for that glory of a strikeout. Or a back, you know, when they're strikeout looking on the corner of the plate, low and away. Glorious. That's the glory that I love to see. And I'm going to be completely honest. I thought women, particularly naked women, were a lot better to look at 
than Jesus. They were more beautiful to me. I longed for them. They gave me the pleasure that I wanted more than Jesus. And I was blind. I did not see Jesus in his supremacy, in his glory as the most beautiful thing that there is because he is. He is. I didn't see it. I was blind. And what it took was I was actually a, a counselor at a summer camp. So I'm, I was in charge of leading kids to hear the gospel. And God used the gospel being preached through my youth pastor to save me. The Holy Spirit used the word of God, the gospel, to open the eyes of my heart that I saw Jesus for the first time. And all of a sudden, everything changed. Everything changed. I saw Jesus. I, I couldn't get enough of the scriptures. I loved him. I, I delighted in him. I wanted to give my life to him. God, take and use me. I, I, I thought I was chasing glory and, and, and thought happiness would be in going to UW, becoming a brain surgeon, marrying a Brazilian model, sailing away on my yacht. That sounded awesome to me. But now I have you. You're beautiful. You're, I want to follow everything with you. It just Here, take it. Man, I'm, I'm yours and I love you. We can sing that song that by James Taylor, right? How sweet it is to be loved by you. It's sweet. There's nothing better than it. The reality is, is that you can have all of the historical arguments. You can have all the philosophical reasonings. But it's God who opens your heart to see him for who he really is. James, or John 3, 3. Jesus answered him, truly, truly. When we see truly twice, hey, pay attention. Listen up. What I'm about to say is important. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And I, I'm saddened, I'm burdened. I feel burdened that many people, they, they hear about Jesus or they think that they see Jesus, but they really just view him as a nice guy, a good teacher, an example to follow. But he's not everything. He's not the treasure. He's not the ultimate satisfaction of life. It's not the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. He's not the highest delight. He's not followed wholeheartedly. He's not joyfully surrendered to. This is what faith is. Faith is not just an agreement, an affirmation of facts. It is a longing, an appetite, a, a seeing Jesus and being satisfied in him. Seeing Jesus and savoring him. I love that word, savor. I love savory foods. I love sweet foods. I, I like foods, but I especially like the word savor. <laughs> Faith is seeing and savoring Jesus. Unless you are born again, unless you have new eyes, you don't have true faith. And when this miracle happens, because it is, I was just talking with a guy yesterday about the gospel and about Jesus, and he talked about him like he knew him. Like, yeah, you know, I grew up in church. I grew up going to Sunday school. And, you know, it's just, it just is not really for me. 
you know, religion's not really for me. I, I won't look down at you for your religion, but I know what right and wrong is. And, uh, you know, I know, what, I know what Christianity is about, but um, I, I decided not against that. And you don't know, man. You don't know Jesus. The Jesus that I'm telling you about right now, you don't know him. You haven't seen him. Because when you see Jesus, suddenly you see that he's better than everything. Jesus is better than porn. Jesus is better than sex. He's more pleasurable than sex. He's better than, than drugs and alcohol and partying. He's better than food. He's more comfortable than your couch. He's better than your television shows and Super Bowls and glories of sports. Jesus is better. You see that. Jesus is better than having a nice career and a nice lawn and a nice comfortable house. Even some of you might be hearing this and think, yeah, right. Jesus is better than sex. Have you had sex, Daniel? I don't buy that. It doesn't feel like it. And what Jesus would say is that you have eyes, but you don't see. You can't see. What you need to do is ask the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of your heart to show you who God really is in Jesus. The joy, the life that he really is. I have to finish the testimony because I want you guys, I don't want you guys to get the wrong idea that once I got saved, like everything was perfect for me. Like I see Jesus perfectly. I don't, man. I don't. Like things often look a lot better than Jesus does to me. A lot, many things can appear more beautiful than Jesus to me. What happens, I kind of, I start to close my eyes and, and things like uh, my couch, my, the safety of my home, my family, my wife, they, they all look better than Jesus. And I don't want us to get the wrong idea that, that although faith means seeing and savoring Jesus, that it's a kind of perfect seeing and a perfect savoring. It's, kind of, it's a continual process. The Bible calls sanctification, and we're, we're growing, we're getting changed. The Holy Spirit is continually opening, opening our eyes, and this happens on the way, on the way in relationship with Jesus. We can't think that just because Bartimaeus was healed, that he threw down his cloak, he sprang up, he came to Jesus, he immediately followed him, that he followed him perfectly from then on. We can't think that. Because throughout the gospel according to Mark, we have seen the disciples miss it again and 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 Jesus is patient. He's gracious. He shows them. He teaches them. He reveals their blindness. He, he heals their blindness along the way. As disciples, as, as followers of Jesus, we have to continually fight to follow. We have to fight to follow. We have to press into Jesus to, to ask him to continually open our eyes that we might see him for who he really is that he might be the most beautiful thing we've ever seen, that he might be the, the treasure that he really is, the, the satisfaction of all life. It, but it's a process. We've seen this already in, in the first healing of a blind man in, in Mark chapter 8, verses 23 through 26. The, the healing of a blind man happens in, in two stages. You guys remember this story? 
He, he lays hand on him the first time, and, and the man sees, but it's kind of blurry. And then Jesus lays hands on him again, and his, his, sight, his sight is fully restored. Mark kind of indicating this reality that it's a process. It's a gradual seeing of Jesus. It perfect spiritual, perfect eyesight does not happen instantaneously. We need the Holy Spirit to continually open our eyes and see him for who he really is. And in this way, disciples, we are healed continually along the way. Jesus leads those who see and savor him along the way. In relationship with him, in journey with him as they're following him. If you're here this morning and, and you call yourself a disciple and yet so many things look better than Jesus, know that there is grace. It is a process that he has placed his word and this community around you to reveal who he is and, and help you see him, show you your blind spots, help you see Jesus for who he really is. There's grace. This, this church is, is a gift. This community is a gift. This, his word is a gift to help us see him for who he really is. Please don't get discouraged if right now you're thinking, man, I, I've just missed the mark so bad. I feel like a failure. There's grace. Your sins are paid in full on the cross. Jesus is not angry at you. I might be. No, just... He loves you. He wants what's best for you. He wants you to see him for who he really is. I want you guys to see Jesus for who he really is. That's why I preach. I want you guys to see and to savor Jesus. And we're continually healed along the way in relationship with him. One of the things that we can't think that we do is somehow cure our, our own blindness. We can't, like, get our fingers and just, okay, if I can just pull my eyes open, I can just see Jesus for who he is. It's, it's supernatural. It's the Holy Spirit. But there are some ways that the Holy Spirit works and does this. In his word. You will find, as you are in God's word more and more, how blind you are. You will find, as you are in a deeper community that is committed to one another, and you're growing in relationship with one another, you'll find more blind spots. I wanted to close uh, the sermon with a story that's found in Luke chapter 7 that I, I, I hope would be helpful as we're thinking about this as we might not be treasuring Jesus as, as ultimately as uh, Jesus asked of us and we're not really seeing Jesus as who he really is. I think one of the principles that we see again and again in the Gospels is that we, if we follow Jesus, if we shout for Jesus, if we treasure Jesus to the degree that we understand what he saved us from. We will see Jesus to the degree we, which we understand our blindness. And there's a story that I think illustrates this, this, this really well in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. It's a story of a woman's sins being forgiven. The story goes like this. Uh, you don't have, if you don't want to flip there, you can just listen along. One of the, verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. 
he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at a table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in a Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair in her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now the Pharisees who invited him saw this, said to themselves, if this man were a prophet, would he have known who and what sort of woman who is touching him? For she is a sinner. And Jesus said, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, from whom he canceled the larger debt. And he, Jesus, said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you give me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, for from the time I came, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, she, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. He who is forgiven little loves little. In other words, the more you understand your forgiveness, the more you understand God's grace and God's mercy, the more you will love Jesus. The more you understand your blindness and what Jesus saved you from, the more clearly you will see Jesus. This is why we, we talk about sin pretty oftenly at the Mountain Church. This is why we celebrate what's called communion every week to remind us of this, to remind us of the cross, remind us of our forgiveness, that Jesus died for us on the cross. Our sin was so great, so evil, so wicked that God had to die for it. But yet we were so loved and accepted that he, he wanted to do that. Jesus came and joyfully, willingly died for us because he loves us. And our love is always a response to his love. So this morning, if you're thinking, man, I, I don't really love Jesus as, like you're talking about, Daniel, or I don't really see and savor Jesus. Like, if, if this is what faith is, I don't know if I have very strong faith. Please don't think that it's somehow inside of you to, to strengthen up and have more faith. And I can just, if I just open my eyes more clearly, I can see Jesus. Look to the cross. Look to the gospel. Look to God's grace. Repent, confess of your hardness of heart, confess of your blindness, and ask God to give you new eyes that see and savor him. Come sit at the feet of the cross. Ask him to reveal deeper to you who he is and who you are in light of what he has done for you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your church. Thank you for the, the people, the family 
the members of this church that you have put together, that you have united, that we are a community of faith that, that seeks to know you, to love you, to delight in you. Jesus, I thank you for community, for the people that you have placed in my life to show me my blind spots, to help me in my pursuit of you, to help me throw aside my cloaks that things don't trip me up in my pursuit of you. Father, I ultimately thank you for your word. Father, I ask as the, the psalmist prays in Psalm 119 that, Father, you would open our eyes that we might see wondrous things in your word, that we would be a church that cherishes your word, that loves your word, that, that is like a double-edged sword that cuts us and renews us and heals us and reveals our blind spots and, and shows us the gospel and shows us you and, and our love and acceptance in you. And Father, we be a church that, that continually stands on your word that doesn't lose that. Father, as long as you have ordained us to be alive, to be a church, may we not falter from your word. I pray now that we would respond to your word accordingly, that this might be a time in which uh, blind spots are uh, revealed, that hardness of heart is revealed, that, that callousness is revealed, that, that would be repented of and, and turned to you as we celebrate your life, death, and resurrection through the table, coming to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and as we sing in joyful response to the gospel. I ask this in your name, in your will, and according to your power and your grace. Amen.